Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay. Where should we start with this? Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston and Dara Lind. We wanted to talk today about the shooting in Pittsburgh last week and the broader constellation of of issues around sort of resurgence of of anti-Semitism in America that I think we've seen over the past couple of years. Uh, But but just to keep things grounded, like let's start with the shooter himself. Robert Bowers, he has a quite broad dislike of Jewish people, but also a fairly specific conspiracy theory that he adhered to in this case. Yeah, Adam Serber of The Atlantic put this best. I will now I'm committed to put this in the show notes, but it's a great essay and everyone should read it anyway. After the shooting, he said that it's entirely possible to imagine that something else would have sent this dude over the edge at some other time, that he would have decided to kill a bunch of people for whatever reason, but that he chose specifically to go to this synagogue and that he chose it in relation to a particular story. And so the genealogy of that is is therefore worth explaining. The Tree of Life Synagogue and the congregation that was there when he shot it up had participated in a fundraiser for Hyas, which is the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Well, was the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. It is now just Hyas over the course of its, you know, 100-year history. It has taken that part out of its name because it's no longer just helping Jewish immigrants. It's now primarily a refugee resettlement organization that's one of the— Can you explain some of the history, though? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What, what, yeah, what, like, what was right, originally? I mean, originally, so. this is one of the—you know, a lot of the integration efforts in the early 20th century are the efforts of— specific organizations funded by people who are both kind of more assimilated members of that ethnic group, but also just kind of general progressives who want to promote Americanization, but for the purpose of taking like the Jews who were living in the Lower East Side and making sure that they had jobs, that they, you know, were learning English, that they were acclimated to their new lives, which is a function that rhetorically America has put a lot of emphasis on, that you should like become American, but that doesn't really you know, the government isn't giving everybody English lessons when they come to the U.S. It's expecting them to do that on their own. Um, So these kind of, you know, civil society groups 
were pretty prevalent during the era of peak immigration before the era that uh, Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions liked so much in the 1920s when you start doing the national quota system. But HIAS persisted as an organization during the era of national quotas, which cut substantially against Jews, was working to kind of fix that system. And then especially toward the fall of the Soviet Union, refugee resettlement got tangled up with Jewish diaspora politics in a very specific way because a lot of Jews in the Soviet Union were trying to get out and were suddenly being allowed to. There's a big wave of Jewish emigration in the late 1980s, early 1990s that the U.S. is really facilitating and highest is a big, big part of that. And so having kind of become a major player in refugee resettlement, highest then, after the fall of the Soviet Union, turned its attention to just resettling refugees generally. The line that, you know, the president of highest said to me that was bouncing around a lot uh, this past week is, we used to take care of refugees because they were Jewish. Now we take care of refugees because we are Jewish. It's an expression of the understanding that Jews have been a displaced people for much of our history, that it's very important to Jewish values, not just to give charity generally, but specifically to understand that, you know, what it is to be a stranger in a strange land. So with all of that, what that's meant is that right now, a lot of the work that Hyas does is like on Syrian refugees, for example. It's on groups that aren't as assimilated into whiteness as Jews have become, as the right has become more skeptical of refugees and as the flow from Latin America has turned into a Central American refugee flow, the idea of, or asylum flow rather, the idea of humanitarian immigration has kind of become suspect. It's become a way to think about, okay, people replacing our culture, people sneaking in. So this specific conspiracy theory requires Drawing a connection between HIAS, which is doing, again, refugee resettlement work, they're not primarily doing work on asylum, they're not primarily doing work in Central America, and connecting it to the caravan. And uh, kind of specifically the idea that the caravan is funded by Jews, which starts with the thrown out there test balloon that Matt gets the Republican congressman throughout a couple of weeks ago in which he shared a video of people getting money and said, who is giving that money, Soros? And goes from there to a still in a Fox News clip of the caravan that shows a truck with a Star of David on it. Fox News didn't emphasize the Star of David. Anti-Semites on the internet happily uh, picked that up and emphasized the Star of David. So taking the Jews are funding the caravan thread and uniting it to this existing distrust or hostility toward Hyas for trying to replace, quote unquote, our people. So and therefore making the post that he wrote on Gab, which is the pro-hate speech social network on which he was very active and which has now run into a lot of trouble with like hosting and such, right before he went into the Tree of Life synagogue was, I can't sit by and watch our people be slaughtered, to paraphrase, it's not the exact phrase, but screw your optics, I'm going in. It's the idea that Whatever is happening in southern Mexico is such an urgent threat to white civilization that it's necessary to start exterminating the Jews right this instant. Yeah, that specific conspiracy theory, you know, I wrote about how anti-Semitism is itself a form of prejudice that is based on conspiracy. And I talked to a bunch of people for this, and this is something I wrote my 
undergraduate honors thesis on Nazi propaganda. So like the history of anti-Semitism in Europe is something I know a lot about and have written on a fair amount. But it's interesting because unlike other forms of prejudice, anti-Semitism holds that Jewish people are actually secretly incredibly powerful and are using everyone, but specifically non-white people, to do their evil bidding for the purposes of subverting white Americans. And I, I want to be very careful about this because I, you know, this is far-right anti-Semitism. We see anti-Semitism on the far left. I think a lot of people have brought up Nation of Islam's Louis Farrakhan, who is incredibly anti-Semitic, but still holds to this basic conspiracy theory. You know, he said in February that the Jews have control over agencies of government. When you want something in this world, the Jew holds the door. And this idea that unlike other forms of prejudice, which, you know, anti-black racism does not hold that black people are secretly powerful. It holds that black people like myself are secretly stupid. And that we are biologically inferior. But anti-Semitism would hold, especially on the far right, would hold that. And you see this in the 1950s and 1960s. I have a bunch of citations in the piece that I wrote on this, that Jewish people are secretly behind desegregation because they want to subvert the white race. Jewish people are behind mixed race marriages because you want to subvert the white race. And Jewish people are behind the caravan because the caravan will somehow result in Latino people and white people having sex and creating mixed race babies, and that will subvert the white race. So I, I really do want to like highlight the cosmology and the, the coalitionness of it because I think it's really important to understand how we go from these other conspiracy theories and racisms that have been more obviously in the news to anti-Semitism. It's like the, you know, I joked about this with Sean on Today Explained, but it's that like Matt and I are all brains and no brawn. And, you know, we're the kind of the the clever but evil nebbishes who are trying to run things, even though we don't actually have the moral fiber to to be true leaders. And Jane represents the like faceless brown masses who are serving as our shock troops because yes. they're all brawn and no brains. Very true. Wait, I've it, said that myself often. I, <laughs> I just think this is a really important point that you make because it's the words exactly don't matter, you know, what, what exactly you want to call it. But, but I think it's important to distinguish like – Modern anti-Semitism, which, as Jane says, is a conspiracy theory about Jewish control. It's not like one specific conspiracy theory, but it's a family of interrelated conspiracy theories. And it's important to distinguish that from other things, right? There's both like a, a traditional sort of religious anti-Jewish prejudice that exists in, in Europe. There are separate kinds of things like a old-fashioned religious anti-Jewish prejudice that existed in, in Europe and there are forms of criticism of the state of Israel that become very, very over the top and, you know, I think bleed into a kind of hatred of Jewish people writ large. But the view and, and you know, you peg it as on the far right but as you know, like also Lewis – Farrakhan, who, I mean, you can think of the Nation of Islam as a kind of far right for black people. Yeah, and but he gets linked with like the women's march and the left, which is very right. Weird so they're different, but 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 I mean, the point is that Farrakhan and far rightists are buying into the same right. cosmic notion, which is different from like. I don't know what you want to call it. It's not just like disliking Jewish people. Right. right? And in particular, it's not. I think there was a move on the sort of mainstream right in the wake of this massacre to cast this as a kind of assault on religion 
or religiosity. Right. I think that and, was Kellyanne Conway's argument, which was saying that um, there was a white supremacist who was also mentally ill because sometimes those two things go together, who attempted to break into a black church in Kentucky and could have done something really awful and then also killed um, two elderly African-American people in a parking lot, but then told a witness, you know, whites don't kill whites. And so you saw Kellyanne Conway kind of using that as like, ah, this is anti-religion, which is like not true. Right. I mean, right, e- exactly. And and you see it in what this guy is saying, right? That like he is positing not an objection to aspects of Jewish religious practice. Right. Right. But in a view that the Jews in some sense are working together and across national boundaries and trying to undermine right. America. And that that's a very powerful force for the past 150 to 200 years in the world. Right. And it, it's, it's a relatively modern phenomenon where it's like prejudice against Jewish people is not, but like – Czarist Russia at a particular point in time constructs this like er conspiracy. The Protocols the, of the Elders of Zion. Uh, Zion, right. And and all these other things sort of flow out from that that universe and they exist in some fairly specific ways. I've been reading recently about a guy named Kevin McDonald who was a um, an evolutionary psychologist at in the University of California system and he – published a, a book in 1994 called A People That Shall Dwell Alone, where he wound up going way outside of the mainstream in his field, which is itself a, a little bit of a, a marginal field. And he says that Jews in America have a group evolutionary strategy and that this strategy has various different elements to it. But one of the things he says is that Jews in America benefit from the United States being an ethnically diverse society and therefore Jews act deliberately to promote diversity through manipulating U.S. immigration policy, right? And so this is like a totally different kind of highbrow pseudo-academic version of of the same thing that this killer is saying that you see in, in lots of other places. And the common thread is not that like a Jewish person being in the cafeteria is going to pollute you somehow in the way that a lot of sort of Jim Crow racism suggested. But it's that Jewish people in a group are going to network together and exert their power in in a nefarious way. Right. And it's something that's interesting because I think uh, there was an article that was in the New York Times um, a couple of days ago talking about anti-Semitism in New York. And I thought that was particularly interesting because they pointed out that there has been an increase in anti-Semitic incidents, but it's not coming from like far right groups in New York. And something I brought up is this idea that anti-Semites view Jewish people as being like apart from their community. And I just, I'm making a lot of hand gestures right now, which is not good for this very visual podcast. But this idea that Jewish people are separate from the community, you know, there's the rootless cosmopolitan, which was Stalin's term for them, kind of during Stalinist Soviet Union. But there have been attacks on Orthodox Jews and Hasidic communities in New York People who view Jewishness as being like, oh, you're not a part of this community. You're not a real part of – and you see that, you know, I went through all of the Pittsburgh Shooters Gab postings before Gab deleted everything and did what they do. And there was a lot of this idea that like Jewish people cannot be a part of wherever they are. They are just like – there's terminology not just on his profile but terminology among anti-Semites about like Jewish people acting like – 
they're not real Americans. And you saw that um, Ted Nugent posted something in, during the 2016 presidential campaign where it's an image, and you know, this will go up in the show notes, it's an image of democratic Jewish Americans. But in front of all of their pictures is a little Israeli flag. And there are references about how one of them gave Russian Jew immigrants your tax money. And this idea that like, oh, you know, all of these people are not representing American interests, despite, you know, the pictures include like Chuck Schumer and Mike Bloomberg, who are all born definitely in America. And this idea like, no, they can't really be Americans. They're representing Israel, a country that is not this one. And right. this this apartness, it's common with anti-Semitism across political lines, this idea that like it's not, you know, you cannot be Jewish and of your country at the same time. I think that this is really important to understand because anti-Semitism is a lot older than Israel is. Yes. But Israel has become a way to create a political criticism of Jews where previously there was just a cultural criticism. Right. Like, obviously, it seems a little more legitimate and— this gets into the question of anti-Semitism on the left because there is a very live foreign policy debate on the left about, like, is it always anti-Semitic to talk about the very established pro-Israel interest group infrastructure in D.C. without spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about where Jews' quote-unquote true loyalty lies? Like, these are worthwhile questions. But these questions exist because the idea that Jews are unassimilable stems from our experience as a diasporic people. Like, we weren't the majority anywhere. We were always in these little communities. And it's not a value judgment either way to say that given the history of the Jewish people, like— I and a lot of other Jews in 2018 would not have family histories in which we identified ourselves as Jewish if Jews hadn't been held apart and held themselves apart so much, right? There are so many opportunities in which Jews could have assimilated into nothingness, and they didn't. Like, the unassimilation of the Ashkenazi Jewish community is why I can't get any clarity from 23andMe on where my father's side of the family came from, because it's just like, Ashkenazi Jew, X percent of the DNA. That's partly a thing that Jews themselves have done, a deliberate, like, you can do a structural functionist read on Jewish ritual practices as like, oh, they're making it impossible to turn them into Christians. But there's also deliberate ghettoization there. Yeah. And that's where I think it's not just natural to connect Jews to the current immigrant groups where the invasion slash they don't want to become part of our people is now so prevalent. But it's also kind of like a model for that, right? This simultaneous, well, you have to live in the ghetto. You can't go out at night. You know, you can't do business with us. But at the same time, why aren't you trying to become us? Let's, let's, take, a break. let's take a break because I want to talk about Donald Trump. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. 
Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So hanging over all of this to me is Donald Trump. Like, I grew up in the United States of America as a Jewish person, and for 30-plus years of that time, I experienced um, sometimes a person from really rural, small-towny places would meet me and not know any Jewish people, like, personally, and would kind of accidentally say something offensive. But I also actually wasn't offended because I didn't—I understood that they didn't mean anything by it necessarily. Um, and I saw some, I think, real anti-Semitism in immigrant communities that were themselves very poorly assimilated to the United States and were sort of bringing anti-Semitic views from abroad to themselves. I saw endless kind of wrangling about left-wing critics of Israel and like were they going too far, something like that. And then I went when I was 18 to Russia, to to a city there. And there I saw like real anti-Semitism like you would see in history books. Like people who really thought like quite sincerely that there were all these problems happening in Russian society in the late 90s, I mean, which there really were, and they would see that like some of the people involved in high levels of Russian society at that time were Jewish, and then also that some people at high levels in the American government were Jewish, and then like next thing you know, right, (laughs) it was like the Jews are destroying Russia, right? And I was like, whoa. You know, it was very different from the kind of different forms of casual prejudice that you might see. And then it came back to the United States. And and again, well, I don't want to say like I never heard somebody say something offensive or like there's this like crazy people on the sidewalk like ranting and raving. But like I never heard like a real normal American expressed the view that, like, there was an organized Jewish conspiracy to bring down the United States of America, that, like, right-wing classical anti-Semitism. Right. Like, as a matter of fact, like, anti-Semitism has kind of been a bright line. Like, there are lots of ongoing conversations about, like, the right often struggles with to what extent can you make broad statements that you think apply to particular groups like black people or Mexicans without it being – but like once people got into talking about Jews, a lot of conservatives were like, whoa, Nelly. And then Donald Trump completely transformed that, right? Like I just don't know how you can be 
clearer about this. Like, right. I, I'm not saying that, like, Donald Trump personally has any problem with Jewish people. But, like, when Donald Trump became a major presidential candidate, I started to routinely hear from white people on the internet. Oh, yeah. A, a reimportation of, like, classic Eastern European anti-Semitism. Where, again, like, I'm, I'm not trying to be dense, right, or, like, deny that Louis Farrakhan was out there yeah. before or that, like, once somebody at an anti-Israel march was like, oh, Jews are terrible. Right. But, like, there, there's a specific thing. There is a, a script, like, we are the true nation. The Jews are the enemy of the nation. And that was a thing that, like, I heard Russian people say in the 90s, but nobody in America. Now, of course, there was a neo-Nazi group somewhere, but, but, like, I didn't hear from them. It was very marginal. Yeah. And now I hear it all the time. Yeah. And do for years. And Donald Trump, I mean, like, I just want to be, like, really – I feel like people have been kid glovesy about this. But, like, Donald Trump has not taken this remotely seriously, right? And what I mean by seriously is, like, we all know, like, I have a toddler. There are things in life that upset people. And because they are upset, they do something to make it not be the case. And then there are things in life that, like, your mom annoyingly makes you say, I'm sorry that I took your truck, right? And, like, everything Trump has ever said about this is your mom is scolding you because you took another kid's truck. Like, I'm sure he likes Jared Kushner. I'm sure he loves his daughter Ivanka. But he has not once— at all indicated a scintilla of sincere concern that for whatever reason, his political movement has led to a giant upsurge in anti-Semitism. Like, not at all. He doesn't care at all. And every time something like this happens, right, like when a gunman comes into a synagogue in Pittsburgh spouting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, massacres 11 people, people draw a connection to Trump and Trump acts pissy about it which is what he's done, it is a huge signal to anti-Semites in America that the president of the United States is on their side. That is what is happening here. And, like, it's just, like, I don't know. Like, I I, I, I feel like nobody quite wants to say it, but, like, he is actively encouraging, like, a procession that, like, it is escalated to the point of actual murder— And, like, they aren't doing anything. So I think that there are actually a couple of points on this. And I think that there's kind of a micro point and a macro point. On the micro point, my view on this is that Donald Trump is physically unable to turn down support from literally anyone. Yes. Which is why you see that during the 2016 campaign, there would be moments in which his supporters would— I think there was a specific moment in which Julia Iaffe wrote a profile of Melania Trump and then got on— ton of anti-Semitic death threats. And Trump's, you know, when he was asked about that by, I believe it was Wolf Blitzer, um, you know, he responded, I don't have a message to the fans. And neo-Nazis took that to be an endorsement. There was a great profile of a specific neo-Nazi that was in the Atlantic that brought this up. And I think that that is more about the fact that Trump himself, he has had quotes about in the 80s, he wants Jewish people to be counting his money. But I think that for him, his view of anti-Semitism is that, you know, anti-Semites who are warm to him, he will be in turn warm to them because he sees like a sense of reciprocity that like he will only disavow people once he's like 
told he has to do it, which is interesting because you see when when Trump was sort of running for the Reform Party candidacy in 2000, he was talking about Pat Buchanan as being like, you know, a couple of steps away from Hitler. And then 16 years later, I've said many times that I think that a lot of Trump's 2016 campaign was a liberal parody of what you think conservatives would be like if you grew up in New York. But like sure. his idea of this is very much like, well, they're nice to me, so I am nice to them. And then I think on the macro point with kind of Trumpism and anti-Semitism, a lot of Trumpism, and you see this even today with, with how some people talk about the quote-unquote never-Trumpers, is that a lot of people who were viewed as being neoconservatives, you know, kind of right. the Irving Crystals, the Bill Crystals, the Max Boots, the something like that, some of them, John Podhort, some of them happened to be Jewish. And you saw those people, you saw even straight-up conservatives like Ben Shapiro and others getting waves and waves and waves of anti-Semitic arguments because this idea that it kind of links back to that history that we see that Jewish people are not working on behalf of America. So this idea like, oh, you're fighting for Israel. Oh, you're doing this to defend Jewish interests rather than just being like, I don't like Donald Trump. But I think it's not a just happen to be Jewish, right? Like here, I think like, I don't quite want to say the anti-Semites have it right, but like it's not a coincidence that in the realm of conservatives, the Jewish conservatives were disproportionately represented in the hostility to Donald Trump. I don't know that it's a coincidence, but I think that also some of that is that Jewish conservatives have been disproportionately neocons and neocons were the ones who were most wary to the idea that Donald Trump would ever be a conventional Republican president. Right. Right. But I think pushing it all, all, all the way back, right? Like, Donald Trump is, as Donald Trump will tell you, in some sense a nationalist, right? And he is in some sense a strident nationalist. And conservative political movements everywhere tend to be nationalistic. But a big question in America is like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a strident American nationalist, right? And neoconservatives have one view of that, right? Right. And that view is it takes – sort of bloodless liberal civic nationalism and it makes it like robust, amped up right-wing nationalism by saying we're going to like intervene aggressively all around the world on behalf of the universal dignity and equality of human beings, right? And like Donald Trump's version of assertive nationalism is like really, really not that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And like this comes – Back to the fact that, like, ethnic nationalism is bad for the Jews, right? Like, I, I don't think you can right. – and to an extent, the fact that, like, Trump and the Trump movement, right, wants to paper over Trump's association with anti-Semitism by being very pro-Israel and the very nationalistic government currently prevailing in Israel wants to paper over – Donald Trump's objective alignment with an upsurge in anti-Semitism by right, saying like even, that Donald Trump is very pro-Israel. Even to the point that the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. was like weighing in and saying it was unfair to talk about the connection between like, you know, it was unfair to emphasize the Trumpism of the Tree of Life shooter. Like right. that's not something you expect a nation that holds itself out to be the Jewish nation on the world stage but, to be getting involved but, but, with. But this is because, right, like when we were kids, right – the predominant 
political viewpoint in Israel, right, was like a, a labor Zionist viewpoint that whatever Palestinians thought of it, it at least thought of itself as being kind of high-minded and, you know, in the in the tradition of Mazzini and liberal nationalism. And, like, you now have Netanyahu, Naftali Bennett, um, you know, it's called revisionist Zionism, but it's just a, it's a Jewish version of the blood and soil nationalism that was so disastrous for European Jews. And this is why, like, Netanyahu can be best buddies with Viktor Orban because they both agree that Jews don't belong in Hungary. Right. I mean, I think that, like, one of the interesting things about nationalism is that, in theory, it means that you are supposed to be representing the entire nation. And, like, right. that's always an ambivalent thing for Jews because it's always easy to hold Jews out from the nation. But, like, Trump isn't even representing all Americans and he's not pretending to. Uh, Michael Brendan Doherty, I get to be the first one to cite National Review in this episode. Uh, Michael Brendan Doherty uh, wrote a very disappointed piece this week as someone who like does Ugh. consider himself a nationalist and said like, Ugh. I was really expecting there to be some kind of unifying acknowledgement that Trump like cares about America and not just about his supporters. And like whether that expectation was reasonable is a separate question. But it's true that – if in theory you want to call yourself a nationalist, you don't get to say, but actually half of the people in America are the enemy, like half of the Americans are the enemy. Trump makes it very clear that he does not consider himself a president of anyone who didn't vote for him. Right. Uh, and so the question of whether you can be a nationalist and not end up trying to eradicate the enemy within is, I think, a very fraught one. And there's a certain element of, like, true nationalism has never been tried to it. Yeah. Because it it does turn out often being very bad for the Jews. But this is the flip side of Trump being unable to resist anyone who supports him. Like, going way back to the primary when his response to a hate crime against a homeless Latino man was, my followers are very passionate. Yeah. Going way back to the very good people thing in, in Charlottesville. But I don't actually think that that totally does let Trump off the hook. What I've been thinking about a lot is the vandalism against Jewish cemeteries right after the inauguration because that wasn't even like a case where there were tapes of people wearing MAGA hats. Like it wasn't obviously clear that this was pro-Trump, just that it was anti-Semitic. And yet it still took Trump a lot of drubbing to say anything even cursory, and then anything more than cursory. Meanwhile, like, Mike Pence is out there, like, helping set up the tombstones again. But in general, it really does seem to be that Donald Trump is so concerned about his team winning and the other team losing that, you know, his reaction at the rally on in Missouri on Thursday night was that it was a real shame that people died because it arrested the momentum that Republicans had in the midterms. Like, anything that demotivates his team is bad for his team, and therefore, the real problem with, you know, anti-Semitic hate crimes is that other Republicans might be more worried about anti-Semitism. That both makes him objectively a, like, it means that he's saying the anti-Semites are on his team. Right. And it cuts strongly against the idea that you get to call yourself a nationalist because it's not just that you're calling Jews not American, you're calling literally half the country. And, you know, the people who in theory are going to, you're now worried, will outnumber you in the midterm elections on America. Okay, we need, we need to take another break. Yeah. But I think there's like more at work with Trump here. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. 
But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So, Jane, like, your just essay on, on anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories is great. Thank you. And this is where I think it's important that, like, Trump is awash in conspiracy, in conspiracy <laughs> theories, right? It's true that Trump in some sense, like, doesn't want to turn down any support that he gets. But, like, when, I don't know, like, right-wing Cuban exiles want to support Trump, Trump doesn't, like— turn around and welcome that by, like, turning down the anti-Latino and anti-immigrant rhetoric in Trumpism. Like, he loves conspiracy theories. And he in particular loves conspiracy theories about the media and about some kind of transnational cabal that is trying to undermine the integrity of American borders and national identity. Uh, Jonathan Chait said it was like anti-Semitism without Jews that Trump had architected. But it the malicious actors in the Trumpian conspiracy theory are all the same people who are the malicious actors in an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And like, to me, it just seems like it's it's the same. You know, like Donald Trump's view is that there is some kind of international conspiracy operating through the financial system and the media to undermine the strength of the nation. And like, that's just what the classical anti-Semitic view is. Like, it's not a cousin to it. It's not like a clever variant on it. The only spin on it that makes it different is that we have Israel now and Trump thinks that's great and that, like, there should be a little country for Jewish people so that they don't ruin the world with their cosmopolitan globalism. But, like, he would, like, refer to the Jewish members of his own administration as the globalists right. and counterpose them to the nationalists and then conclude that he himself is a nationalist. Right. And, like, I don't know what to call that other than, like, Donald Trump articulated to Donald Trump's own supporters an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about how the American government under Donald Trump works. Right. I mean, I think all of that is true. I just – I think that it gets into the question of – 
Donald Trump's psychology to one. Like, it seems to me that Donald Trump believes he can change the meaning of words just because he wants to. Right. So, like, I think Donald Trump in his head thinks that when he says it, it's not anti-Semitic. Right. And and something I want to get to that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, and I think you both have been talking about, is, you know, this is bigger than the conversation about anti-Semitism, but it's so interesting to see part of Trump's electoral victory in 2016. In I mean, there's a lot to the electoral victory in 2016, was uh, the yes. idea that you could One, it wasn't supposed to just be Republicans. It was supposed to be like appealing to independents who were turned off by Hillary Clinton. And this idea, the famous Maureen Dow headline about um, Hillary the Hawk, Donald the Dove, which wound up being one of the wronger things that's ever been written in the history of collective time. But this idea that you could appeal to – you know, disinterested Democrats and kind of third-party libertarians by kind of vaguely promising health care for everyone and then talking about massive investment in cities, but kind of making like vague enough promises towards the middle that people were like, okay, this, you know, this may be if you don't spend all of your time following Trump's remarks around and we're not a non-white or Jewish person during the midst of the 2016 election, maybe that was something that appealed to you. But it's interesting to see the shift, and you're seeing it in conservative media as well, and the idea that, like, half the country, i.e. Democrats and people who might be aligned with Democrats, are just bad, evil people who hate America. And this idea, like, that there is no, like, you know, there's that alleged hashtag walkaway movement, but, like, it's not even about that. It's about this idea that, like, Democrats hate America— uh, people aligned with Democrats hate America, and ergo, that there is no real effort at bringing people over towards the middle, not necessarily to make them Republicans, but to make them into people who could potentially vote for Republicans. And I find that so interesting. And I also want to get on something going back to 2016 that I think that we probably all experienced on Twitter and the internet is, you know, and I wrote about this in my piece a little bit, is that anti-Semitic views, they weren't just coming from, like, hardcore white nationalists. You know, this wasn't just, like, the people who post on Daily Stormer. And there became this emergence of what I think some might call kind of ironic anti-Semitism. Yes. And that became something, and there's a great piece on Bellingcat that I can put in the show notes, and it talked about um, how there's a term called red-pilling, and it's a reference to the Matrix, where there's a moment in which uh, Morpheus offers you the red pill or the blue pill, and if you take the red pill, you go down the rabbit hole and see how far this all goes. Great movie, by the way. But this idea of how people got red-pilled into anti-Semitism or into, like, white nationalism. And there was a lot of research on how sometimes it came through, like, you know, you started out on Reddit threads about mainstream stuff, and it just went into weirdo land. But this idea that ironically anti-Semitic memes that were something that got a lot of people into anti-Semitism that they didn't see as being anti-Semitic. And um, I quote in this piece from far-right provocateur kicked off every platform, Milo Yiannopoulos, who talks about, you know, it's not that the ironic anti-Semitic memes and jokes about Jews among the alt-right is it's not because there is a spontaneous outpouring of anti-Semitism. What it is is that's a mischievous, dissident, trolley generation who do it because it gets a reaction. But then he goes on to say, you know, well, they may have some prejudice about Jews. Like the Jews run everything. Well, we do. The Jews run all the banks. Well, we do. And so it's interesting how he buys into the conspiracy theory by arguing that it's not a conspiracy theory, which it is. And so I think it's interesting how we see this a little bit with kind of other forms of prejudice, but this idea that 
ironic anti-Semitism is something where you can just make Holocaust denial jokes or talk about these things in this weird trolley way where you can be both immersed in anti-Semitism but disconnected from anti-Semitism because it's just a joke. Yeah, I think that the term red pill, which my first exposure to its use in this way was through the men's rights advocacy movement, right? Mm. There are worthwhile parallels there because the idea of the red pill isn't just like It's not the same as becoming woke, right? It's not like, oh, you didn't understand how the world works and now you do. It's specifically, you thought you were in control of your fate. But it turns out that you are a cog in someone else's machine. They have the power and you don't. And only by actively rebelling against them can you restore agency. And like I have said on this podcast a bunch, you know, everyone's the victim in their own story. I think that that is generally true, and I think that that's why things like this appeal to a lot of people. But in general, if you're a white dude in 21st century America and you're looking to other identity groups to point the finger as to who is controlling your fate if you're not, you don't have a ton of options. You know, it makes sense that men are pointing to women for this. Donald Trump doesn't really have that option. Donald Trump has made domination of women a key part of his brand and appeal to women and all of that a key part of his brand for decades. So there aren't a lot of options for who do you blame for your failures if you cannot blame yourself that Donald Trump has available. He can't blame the older, rich aristocracy compared to his nouveau richness. Like, I mean, he could, but it's a it's a much harder lift. Right. He can, however, blame the idea that there is another super supranational group that, in fact, is more powerful than even the incredibly powerful, rich, and successful Donald Trump. I think that that is anti-Semitism as life raft rather yeah. than anti-Semitism as, like, choice among equals. It's oh, the best available option to Donald Trump in the 21st century for who is responsible for your failures is there are still conspiracy theories about the Jews controlling everything. Right. Let's go with that. But here's, but here's I think, where it gets even closer, right? So, so Augusta Bebel was a, a German social democratic politician, late 19th, early 20th centuries. And, and he said in a sort of, I think, moment of frustration uh, with the German working class that anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools, Right, that this like you have people and they are upset about the way the economy works and about the way the world works. And instead of embracing the Social Democratic Party's systematic critique of capitalism and German political economy, they decide, oh, Jews are conspiring against me. Right. And so much of Trumpian politics to me has that socialism of fools quality to it, not necessarily directly implicating Jews in it, but it's like Donald Trump wants the politics of being a fierce critic of the status quo economic system. Yes. Right? Like he presents himself as an enemy of the elites and of the status quo in a specifically economics-y way. Right? Like in the Rust Belt towns, they've gotten rich by making you poor. But he does not do anything at all to challenge the prerogatives and economic interests of wealthy Americans. Like at all. Right? And like that is the the exact core 
of his political stance. And I just don't know that you can do that without in some sense implicating anti-Semitic ideas. I mean, uh, you mentioned that uh, Michael Brandon Doherty's essay, he he was one of the leading people who really bugged me in the week after this by like insisting like – Okay, it may be true that, like, Trump plays footsie with anti-Semites, but, like, you know, you can't say that you can't have this whole discourse of, like, reactionary Catholicism and blood and soil nationalism and all this table-thumping anti-elitism, which has no economic policy content to it, that I, Michael Brendan Doherty, like, and say that's all just inherently anti-Semitic. But, like, I think that I can say that. Right. That like in his whole essay about how he's disappointed that Trumpian nationalism isn't delivering on its promises, he just like doesn't mention like the real meat and potatoes of economic policy in the United States because like conservative politics is this like endless hamster wheel of like if you want the wealthy and powerful to have less stuff and ordinary people to have more stuff. You have to take the stuff from the wealthy and powerful and give it to the ordinary people. You can also not want that, like, you know, like the Koch brothers. But, like, if that's the outcome you want to, like, enrich the masses at the expense of a narrow elite, the narrow elite must be the narrow elite that has all the stuff. It can't be like college professors you don't like or some guy you found annoying on Twitter. But like this whole cast of like right populist politics, like from Donald Trump to its most highbrow overpraised form. So it's just over. It's like it's all this same dumb con. And like whether it's Trump or Orban or all of these people, like if you don't want to raise taxes on rich people, all you've got is this like nonsense posturing and conspiracy theories. Uh, So I, at some point, want to get into a longer conversation with you about Bourdieu and the extent to which all social and cultural capital are just pale imitations of economic capital or whether it's like actually meaningful to say that if you have economic capital but are locked out of having social capital, that you are meaningfully like not elite. Because I don't think I agree with you on that, but I also don't think that this is the time. But – I do, you know, this is why I kind of jokingly said earlier in the episode that it's a true nationalism has never been tried. Like, I'm having a little bit of trouble articulating a good, totally different analog to this. But I think that it should be familiar to people to think about the values that they hold and the people that they're loyal to and, you know, worry that inevitably that – I mean, OK, so so maybe an OK parallel here is the – current progressive commitment to pluralism and how it interacts with uh, anti-sexism, right? Because there's a lot of impulse of, like, we shouldn't be invading Iraq for the sake of, you know, more rights for women. We shouldn't be telling other countries, other cultures what to do for the sake of, quote unquote, empowering women. At the same time, it is historically the case that more local pluralistic control does in fact tend to not be great for women, that the women in those communities don't necessarily have power on their own to articulate what they want and to be able to get it without an anti-sexist commitment from the outside. So I understand the desire to preserve a value like pluralism or nationalism combined with the anxiety and ambivalence about in practice this ends up running into other things that I don't like. But but I think, you know, so nationalism in Europe, right, has a kind of specific meaning 
and ideology. And it comes from a time when most European people are under the political authority of these like hazy dynastic entities. Holler at the Habsburgs. Right, a Habsburg empire, a czarist Russia that kind of meandered oddly. And so the nationalist idea is, look, a linguistic community should be self-governing, should be a self-governing nation. And that idea, just like on its own terms, like articulated perfectly, was just like catastrophic in its implications for Jewish people. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's not a misimplementation, right? Like it's not like that everything about the Habsburg Empire was amazing. But but the idea of a plural – of a ethnically and linguistically pluralistic empire that's held together by the dynastic authority of the Habsburg dynasty and perhaps tempered by some notion of individual liberties – Right? Like that is a vision in which there could can still be a Jewish population in Central and Eastern Europe, like had it worked out. Yeah. But like it didn't work out. And once you start dissolving those empires and saying this is the Czech nation, this is the Polish nation, this is the Lithuanian nation, like there's no room for Jewish people in that conceptualization of a nationalized Europe, right? Now, America has a completely different political tradition. Right, in which like the concept of nationalism has not traditionally played a role in American political debates in that kind of way. And it's hard to – you know, I had like a pointless Twitter argument about like – well, you could say like Abraham Lincoln was an American nationalist, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But but those are not the terms in which that debate happened, whereas in Europe they really did, right? Throughout the 19th century, there was a big argument like should we be Catholic universalists or should we be nationalists? Should we be loyalists to the state of Bavaria or should we be German nationalists? And like nationalism and just like what it authentically meant is like – this is really bad for Jews. And it eventually produced through Herzl this like counter idea that like we should have a Jewish nationalism because the con- – because other people's nationalism is just bad for us. Right. And like I don't think there's any saving of that, right? And we have in the English language like this other word, patriotism, right? Right. That like means like – I am a loyal citizen of the United States of America. I'm not like secretly an agent of some foreign power or part of a global conspiracy to destroy the country. Right, like and I think that applies to me. loyalty to the state. And I think that that's kind of why we saw so much emphasis on it during the Bush era, like turning 9-11 into Patriot Day. Bushian conservatism really was loyalty to the state that had a capacious view of the nation. Right. But and, and that's perfectly compatible with whatever because like you could – a Jewish American could be a patriotic American and I think in most cases absolutely is, right? But like what, like what does nationalism as opposed to patriotism mean in America? Right. Because we like, don't – Like what could it possibly mean? It's interesting because, you know, Stalin, his theory of how the Soviet Union was to work is uh, he made and some of the people within Stalinism made the um, analogy to an apartment building. So every culture would have your apartment. You'd have like you could wear your national dress and you could speak, you know, a variation of your national language. But – you know, the Soviet Union is the concierge. The Soviet Union owns the building. The Soviet Union controls the front door. The Soviet Union controls, like, who gets in and who gets out. And that was 
how the, you know how nationalism within the Soviet Union was supposed to be kind of limited and constructed. One that didn't work, and that kind of fell away to some extent, and resulted in a lot of tragedy and turmoil. But also this idea that nationalism is something that you can put into a box and control has never been true. That has never worked out. And we're start, we, we see the ramifications not just in Europe, but we see the ramifications in Africa as well, where you see a conceptualization of what it, you know, we saw Pan-Africanism, which is a movement of people in the you know, 1950s and 1960s during the independence movements. You see like Nkrumah and others who are voicing this idea that like African countries can come together. And that movement then sort of shifted and you see in individual African countries this idea that you know, we want to reject westernization. We want to reject what we believe to be Western influence, which is why in countries like Tanzania, you are seeing that on this coming Monday, people want to start reporting LGBT people that they know to the state. And you saw that in Burundi as well. And you see that in other countries where this idea that there is something apart and something Western about LGBTQ people. And so I think that this idea that nationalism is something that can be kept controlled or kept under a certain aegis of, okay, you can be a nationalist, but up until this point where it's safe for everyone, I don't know if that's ever been historically true. I mean, I think that generally it is true that you don't get to control the passions you inspire when those passions rely on the sense of collective ineffability and invulnerability that happens when you get people together in large crowds, feeling that the crowds are the important part. Like, something that just got clarified for me in what you were saying, Jane, is for all the talk about how Barack Obama was so powerful as a speaker because of the positiveness of his rhetoric. Like, that's fair. But Donald Trump's rhetoric to his followers is very positive. We're winning now. We've never been winning before. Everything's so great. It's also that Obama made it clear that he was inspiring people on an individual level, that he was, that like, as kind of transcendent, as the vibe that often happened at, like, early Obama rallies where, like, people would faint and that kind of thing often was, the actual rhetoric was you as an individual person are part of the American story and the actions that you as an individual person take matter. And that mitigates substantially the collective mentality of somebody at one of those rallies, whereas if you're saying the reason that this is a special experience is because everybody here is together— which is the vibe that the kind of repeat Trump rally goers really go for is the, you know, it's all our team and that makes it really special. You don't get to control where that ends. You don't get to control who is defined as outside of that team and how far people are willing to go. And like, that's not just a Trump problem. It's not just a conservative problem. I don't even know that it's just a nationalist problem, but it definitely is something that I think politicians generally should maybe be a little bit more thoughtful about is, okay, if it's very important because we don't have mandatory voting to inspire people, to give them something to believe in so that they'll go to the polls, like, what are we doing that cuts against that turning into actual civic unrest? With that, (laughs) 
I think we'll just leave you leave you for the weekend. The Weeds is going to be back on Tuesday, where we are going to try to take flight from the news cycle while we let people vote. And then uh, Sarah and Ezra and I will be back on Wednesday, the day after the election. I don't know. Maybe we'll just all crowd into the booth. We'll see. I think that would be great. Yeah, let, let's do that. Um, we'll meanwhile, everybody go vote, even if you're not in, you know, fired up, ready to go, any of that. Yes, do something. So thanks to uh, to all of you out there listening. Uh, thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.